And this is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Today I speak with Carmen Nanco Fernandez of the Catholic Theological Union. Our talk focuses not on theology, but on baseball, specifically the long relationship between the game and the U.S.-Mexico border, in terms of everything from race and immigration to labor and politics. Our conversation is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Carmen Nanco Fernandez writes about many things, but I thought I'd ask her to take a look at a Showtime documentary that caught my interest when it aired late last year. Bad Hombres from director Andrew Glazer. It's about the world's only binational professional baseball team called the Tecos. They play half their games in Laredo, Texas, and half in Nuevo Laredo in Mexico. Carmen's review of the documentary appears in our February issue, yet the topic seemed to avail itself to a longer discussion, especially as we're about to embark on a new baseball season, and as sports in general, like so much else in American society, is both reflecting and being affected by clashing political currents. Carmen sees baseball in the context of a broader border narrative as well, where issues about immigration, labor, race, politics, and culture all play out. She also touches on how the politics of the moment are also being expressed through and within the wider world of sports. Hi, Carmen. Thanks for being here with us today. Thanks. It's a privilege to be here, Dominic. You found the documentary itself underwhelming, but it spurred some thoughts on the relationship between baseball and the border. And maybe you could begin by telling our audience about how you then approached your Commonweal essay. Thanks. First of all, uh, I appreciated when you sent me the invitation to consider, you know, watching the documentary and possibly writing a piece that included a, a review in light of baseball and baseball. And I already knew about the Decos, and I thought this is great. I've known about them for almost two decades, from probably all the almost the very beginning of when I started doing work at the intersections of sport and theology, popular culture and popular religion. But uh, to be honest, I, I was disappointed by the documentary, which I watched a couple of times to make sure. And not to sound obnoxious, but the sense that I received from both the, f- the multiple watchings of the documentary and then from reading some interviews with Glazier was that this was a white tourist filmmaker who discovers Mexican baseball and a bonus, a binational border team. And that the film itself had no real sense of the rich history, let alone the complexity that was represented by the more complicated realities of border relations that even the story of the Tecos alone would have been a great illustration of. Yeah, you actually write that in your essay, that baseball is an entry point into a border parable and La Frontera is the star. Baseball is a border migration narrative on its own terms. So that's where you situated the essay. Could you talk a little bit about this idea? Yeah, I basically thought that he could have done an entire documentary on the border without ever once having to focus it through the story of the Tecos, because he really never tells the story of the Tecos. So to me, an opportunity missed because it was not the greatest of border films, though it had some intriguing pieces. I especially appreciated that he included environmental activists as part of the conversation, showing how the border doesn't just impact human lives, it also impacts the the created universe and what holds us together across boundaries, you know, the nature that doesn't heed boundaries that are created by humans. So I I thought that that was a positive that was dealt with, but you didn't need the Tecos to tell that story. 
And I think you also miss the important tensions that happen when you have a binational team. In 2018, when he did the film, you really had a binational team that consisted of three separate sorts of players. You had Mexican players from Mexico. You have what they call the importados, which usually are no more than five players who can come from anywhere except Mexico. And then you had this new classification that used to be under the importados, which were Mexican-Americans, either who had citizenship in the United States, residency in the U.S., had moved and either were born in the U.S. or themselves had been part of an immigration process to the U.S. And they were now no longer considered as importados. They were considered as part of Mexican national team sort of players. And so that dynamic alone was a powerful sort of border tale that would have just illustrated the complexities that go on at the border. So I thought that was an opportunity missed because he had a border tale if he had just followed um, the story of the Decos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you actually take up that aspect too in your essay about the Mexican American ball players uh, who are Americans, and you write that they're regarded as unregulated usurpers threatening jobs of native-born uh, peloteros. The timing of the change allowing these players uh, to to come and play in Mexico, you write coincided with the Trump administration's growing antagonism toward immigrants and increasingly aggressive actions at the southern U.S. border. So I wonder if you could talk a little more about how you see this tension playing out, not only in terms of baseball, but larger issues of, say, labor, economics, and immigration. The change in the um, status of the Mexican-American players goes down in 2016. So technically, you're still dealing with it if the uh, Trump is still campaigning. But in the campaign rhetoric alone, you had all of the you had the foretaste of things to come in the sense that he outlined what his policies and his attitude towards our southern neighbor was going to be. So you, you see the change going down during that time frame, but it plays itself out during the four years. And the Tecos were not yet in Nuevo Laredo when that change went down. They moved there later. And I think it's, if, if I'm not mistaken, um, I think Glazer picks them up either, either in their first or their second season in back home in, in Los, Los Laredos. But what was happening is that you have these sort of draconian USA border policies building up. You have this team that gets caught in between because while he focuses on the crossings of the U.S. players into Mexico, he ignores the other dimension, which was that the fact that Mexicans were crossing into the United States, into what was basically a hostile environment, made even more hostile at the ballpark when you have uh, the film shows like the honoring of, you know, customs and border patrol, (laughs) their hundredth anniversary. I'm probably wrong on the number, but their anniversary. And they have this whole celebration at the ballpark in front of these poor Mexican nationals, some of whom may have families who were part of that diaspora. At the same time, you have the 4th of July being celebrated. And, And that dimension of the danger was not really highlighted at what must it be like for Mexicans to be stepping in at this particular moment when they weren't even sure if they would be able to get into the United States to do their work. The flip side of it was that here you have USA players, including some who are not Mexican-Americans, playing as migrant workers, in effect, in Mexico, because they're not only playing in a binational team, they're playing throughout the entire league. 
And it's one it challenges any stereotype we might have of what is migrant labor, what it looks like, and who the migrant laborers are. Because in this case, the land of opportunity was Mexico, which had which since the founding of the league, which I want to say the Mexican League baseball goes back to 1924-25, since the founding of that league actually has had U.S. players playing in it, including it being a refuge for, for Negro League players. So there was that sort of dimension of what exactly is migrant labor? How does it look? And what that also did was out the injustices in the minor league baseball system, because many of these players were either former minor leaguers. They had been drafted by major league teams, but they but they rarely have ever made it out of triple A ball in the minors where life was considerably difficult. And to play Mexican League ball meant to play in a greater lap of luxury than you were playing in the United States in minor league ball. So I think it also outed this whole sort of system of what goes on in the minor leagues of our professional teams and how many people are impacted negatively, politically, socially, and economically by what we take for granted because when we pay when we keep our focus on the top level of the professional leagues in our sports. Hmm. I'm sitting here listening to you uh, answer that question, and I, I feel like we missed an opportunity in limiting you to only a couple of pages in the magazine on this topic, because this is really fascinating stuff. And you raised something else, too, even in the, the relatively small confines of this piece that just seems really worth talking about. It's, you situate your piece in the current moment of developments in Major League Baseball in the United States. So while you were writing, for instance, Major League Baseball announced it would now include statistics uh, from players in the Negro League before baseball integrated in 1947. The previous exclusion, or really even the refusal to consider or recognize the feats of these players, is just one thing that leads you to comment on American baseball's own hallowed view of itself. Uh, And the place of that apocryphal statistical designation that you talk about in the essay too, the asterisk, can you talk about that symbol and its role and how baseball views itself? Yeah, I, it, it's funny. I, I like that you called it apocryphal because it, it, that's exactly what it is. It's a figment of the popular imagination. And it's this this sense that at some point that it is possible through attention to statistics and numbers to establish an objective purity. At least that would be how I would look at it, that you can establish an objective purity that can equalize across time and space the accomplishments of folks without ever having to pay attention to the context of those accomplishments. And so if you just pay attention to the numbers, and and I think that's what the asterisk then emerges as something that says this wasn't accomplished in quite the same way as this first number was set. And then the question is, well, well, even if you look at something, I'll give you a, an example. For example, from 1901 to about 1920, the spitball was allowed. And it was in, in the, the dead ball era when the, the batting numbers were not great, probably in part because the, the spitball was mm-hmm. allowed. Well, what you have happening, the spitball winds up being canceled, not so much because it gave an advantage to the pitcher, but I thought you'd appreciate this because – it was the middle of the pandemic of 1918, 1919. Wow. That's right. Mm-hmm. So when it's coming from spitting and you can spread it through you know, droplets, it just didn't seem a good idea to put that on a baseball. It then becomes enshrined as the law. All right, great. 
But if you watch any of these old timer shows or when they have the interviews and, and there's all the winks that go back and forth and who's in the Hall of Fame that threw spitballs, I mean, Gaylord Perry, and you sit there and you say, where's the purity of the numbers when you're winking about wasn't this funny and it's happening after you inspire a loss? So who has decided what is normative, what is objective, and that you can eliminate context and therefore established that this person was better than this other person. Because then you get into situations where, you know, the, the length of the season changes. You go from a 154-game season to 162, or the height of the pitcher's mound changes, or even just physical training capabilities change. Yeah, and what they make the baseball out of, nutrition yeah. issues. And, mm-hmm. and these have also been, even age issues. And these have all been issues that have disproportionately impacted players, international players, especially those from Latin America, when they're coming from countries that are are significantly economically just not equal to the sorts of opportunities that are available in the United States. Mm -hmm. Basically, with a minor league contract in the United States, somebody could feed their family for a lifetime. And they never have to make it to the majors. Just the signing bonus alone can help your community. Every year, the John Paul II Center for Interreligious Dialogue brings together 10 international Russell Berry Fellows to study at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, there to learn about interreligious dialogue and how to build relationships across lines of difference. Russell Berry Fellows live and study in Rome for one full academic year, take classes in ecumenism and dialogue, Judaism and Islam, travel to Israel for a 10-day study tour, study at the Shalom Hartman Institute, and visit the sacred sites in the Holy Land. And they participate in interfaith events with leading practitioners and theologians in the field of interreligious dialogue. The fellowship is now accepting applications from priests, women religious, and members of the laity. Applications are accepted by April 26, 2021. For more details, visit iie.eu slash berry. That's B-E-R-R-I-E. While we were talking, Carmen, about getting this podcast together, you contacted me at one point to, to tell me that Henry Aaron had died. And he was the most recent in the last couple of months of a number of well-known Black baseball hall of famers. It was Lou Brock and Joe Morgan and Dick Allen and Bob Gibson, athletes who came of professional age in the the time spanning Jim Crow and the the civil rights era. And they really ended up shaping major league baseball in the fifties, sixties, and seventies. And I'm guessing, you know, I'm trying to resist my own nostalgia. And that's a, a privilege of somebody like me to be able to just be nostalgic about this kind of stuff. But maybe you could talk a little bit about the era they played in and what kind of lessons uh, meaningful lessons we should we should take from them now. Yeah, I I think it was the the nature of those times. I don't think that we still fully grasp, in part because baseball has done as a as a business. Baseball has done a good job of taking the narrative and swinging it in a way that makes baseball look good. And mm-hmm. the reality was that when these folks reintegrated baseball because baseball was integrated in its very beginnings. Mm-hmm. Then the the sort of gentleman's agreement that no one will hire a black player comes into being. That could have been broken at any time. And they used to play with Latinos as a way of crossing the race line. 
So there's all kinds of interesting tales of a couple of Latinos who played in both the Negro Leagues and mm. the Major Leagues. Mm. So there was this kind of blurring of color lines when convenient. And that the players who played had to endure an enormous amount of stress Yes, on the field, because sometimes they were targeted in unfair ways by fellow players, you know, their mm-hmm. white players who were already mm-hmm. um, had it out for them on, on the field of play, but also that they were expected and in part set in motion by folks like Grant Tricky that they had to suck it up, that they had to take it, because this was the only way that finally baseball would be reintegrated and folks would have a chance because white people had to feel good about all of this. So they mm. couldn't talk back to to sports writers. They couldn't start a fight on the ball field. They couldn't yell at an umpire, mm-hmm. which is the devil's deal that Jackie Robinson unfairly is expected to make for the first two years of his playing career. Mm-hmm. And then when the players do speak out, they wind up becoming targeted and how they get targeted is as being malcontents. Jackie Robinson had to endure this sort of nonviolence I won't even call it a clause, nonviolence posture. That's a better mm-hmm. way of saying it. That he had to endure that he could not speak up, speak out, yell at an umpire for a bad call, or start a fight, no matter what happened to him on the field or off the field. And when that comes off, that these ball players had that expectation. And when they did out or act like human beings who get angry, they were labeled as malcontents right. um, in, in the press. Yeah. The group of black players that is totally overlooked in this narrative of baseball in the 50s, 60s, and and early 70s would be the Afro-Latinos who were part of the black players who integrated and reintegrated baseball. And under that, I'd also include black players from the English-speaking Caribbean as well, because they didn't fit neatly under the characterization of African-American, but yet they were black. And about 25% of Major League Baseball is integrated by Afro-Latinos. And they're the forgotten story of baseball. And they experience what was termed by Clemente and others, Roberto Clemente and others, was that they were treated doubly and even triply, uh, found themselves at the bottom of the pile because not only were they Black, but they also spoke for the most part another language, namely Spanish. Mm -hmm. And the third one was inevitably they came from another country. So they were foreigners, they spoke the wrong language, and they were black, and they had the triple strike. Mm. And so they're part of this complicated story of of the reintegration of baseball and what had to be endured. Mm. Some of the things folks, I think, don't pay attention to is that some of the life expectancies of these players was very short of black players in general during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And in part, it was because of the stress of what it must be like to work in a hostile work environment and not be able to do anything about it. Yeah, I, I know it's a, a, a terrible and, and sad realization about that era. And I think Jackie Robinson was among those, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he, he was the first one who had endured yeah. that. Yeah, but died very young. Yeah. Yes, he did. In fact, he and, and Clemente died in the same year. They died yeah. months apart, 1972. Yeah. Clemente, of course, you mentioned Roberto Clemente, uh, who died in a plane crash while on a, a humanitarian mission to to help people in after an earthquake in Nicaragua in 1972. And you're writing a book about Clemente. And you've talked about how baseball is a part and parcel of certain national identities in Latin America, and how Cuba, the Dominican Republic, and others are iconic in this regard. 
And as you say, are both as are both Puerto Rico and Nicaragua, where memories of Clemente remain sources and exemplars of national pride. Uh, can you talk a little more about Roberto Clemente in that context? Sure. I think it's important, too, to situate him in the greater context as well of baseball in Latin America. In the U.S. today, I think we have the, the impression that baseball just pops up in the past two decades as the number of Latin American players have increased. But in reality, baseball is being played in the Caribbean since the late 1800s. And across the Caribbean, the, the Cubans are considered the apostles of baseball. <laughs> and in, in the U.S. even, you have Latin American. There's a Catholic piece to the story, too, because you have some of the first Latin American ball players, some who bring baseball back into the Caribbean, but also who are the first players in what becomes major leagues in baseball, professional baseball, graduating from Catholic colleges and universities. So the most famous is Esteban or Steve Bayon, who goes to Fordham University, which was then St. John's College. So he played on Rose Hill and winds up becoming what's considered the first ball player from Latin America. When we talk about somebody like Clemente, we just like to think he pops up in 1954-55, when in reality, he's part of this greater stream of a story that, that hasn't been fully explored or even considered in baseball. My contention would be that much of what we now know of as Clemente uh, is really constructed after his death, in part because he dies rarely as an active player, because he was still in uniform in 1972. And he dies on a, during the Christmas season, and he dies doing something good. And at that point, you have the press who had been treating him rather poorly throughout much of his career, calling him everything from a hypochondriac to a troublemaker. You have the press now, I would think, just my theory, dealing out of a sense of guilt because here's this good man who's just died doing something good. And yeah. he was also a really fine ball player. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then his image depends on the place that you're in. So, for example, in Nicaragua, He's portrayed to this day, every year, right around the end of December, because he dies on, the crash happens on New Year's Eve. Right around then, you will start seeing newspaper articles appear in the sports pages. And the president of Nicaragua will issue a letter to his family, to Clemente's family. And they will have celebrations and honoring his name because he's considered in, in Christ-like way as the one who was not of them who came to them in their time of need. And they remember this all these years later, annually. They name hospitals after him, schools, parks. In Puerto Rico, he beca he's really the first major figure in, in Major League Baseball at a time when the island is going through all sorts of turmoil. And he represents for the people of Puerto Rico the best of the island and its people. And he raises up their profile in the global public plaza, for lack of a better way of expressing that. Mm -hmm. And in the USA, he becomes what we consider the high point of sanctity, the model citizen. Yeah. Which is curious because Puerto Ricans have always argued that they're second-class citizens when it comes to their relationship with what, what many will perceive as the colonizing power of the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. But it's fascinating to see how in memory he is reconstructed in ways that reflect what his post-mortem function was, but again, built because he was a, a very fine athlete, but the circumstances of his death 
helped to create that. So Carmen, that's fascinating about Roberto Clemente. I was not aware of a lot of that. Thanks for sharing that. I want to maybe widen the, the focus a bit here. There's this notion that people like their sports free of politics. But as you've written in the past, sport, like religion, is intertwined in the affairs of the polis and a major player in the public plaza. Though, So I guess thus sports can't really ever be free of politics. Is that correct? Right. And, and I, what in our life can be free of politics? Yeah. And depending on how one understands mm-hmm. politics. The reason, too, I ask that is we're seeing so much now in particular among coaches and players in the NBA who are openly political, former major leaguers like Kurt Schilling, speaking from both ends or the middle of the political spectrum. There was a former Olympic swimmer who was seen in his Olympic jacket among those arrested after the uh, January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Uh, you know, championship teams refused to meet with Donald Trump. Patriots coach Bill Belichick during on Trump's awarding the Presidential Medal of Freedom. WNBA players on the team, partly owned by former Senator, uh, Georgia Senator Kelly Loeffler, openly opposed her reelection. Well, the list goes on, and it seems maybe, I guess, particular to our era, but really, does this differ from the political gestures of, the, if you remember the, the Olympic track stars, Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, or Muhammad Ali's activism or, or others. How does the current moment compare to those eras? I think one of the characteristics of the prior eras, was, and, and I would use um, Clemente and Robinson for, as an example, is both in their own ways were activists and vocal, but it rarely happened on the field of play. Mm. Okay, so... They did these things, but usually they were not wearing their uniform because what they let their play speak for them on the field. Mm-hmm. Now, Clemente and then Robinson, after his first two years, were very vocal in the press. And they were vocal not only about criticizing the inside of baseball, because both of them died wanting to know why there were no black managers. Mm-hmm. A question that we still ask in most mm-hmm. major sports. Right. But, but they, they so they fought in the inside of their own profession. And at the same time, they tended when they were fighting on the outside or to be activists on the outside, were usually wearing a suit and tie when they were doing that, which is also intriguing. Mm-hmm. I think one of the differences, and we see it with Kaepernick, and I do think you see it with the, with the, the, the movement back in the 60s, the moment that you just referenced with Tommy John and Juan Carlos. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. The, uh, yeah. Track, the, the runners. Yeah. So I think you see some of it there with on the workplace. You surely see it with, with, with what, what wound up becoming Kaepernick, the movement associated with Kaepernick, is the use of this actually in your workspace too, to speak out about other things that impact your workspace to a certain degree, mm-hmm. but are not just about the practices of your workspace. Mm-hmm. And the Kurt Schilling one is particularly intriguing because, as you know, this is going to be like the first time since 2013, I believe, that there will not be a Hall of Fame induction of a sort of a living player. And in part, Schilling was pretty close to getting it. I think he was like at 71% when they were, when someone was running a tally of how the voting was going and then falls short. And in part, I think it was hard to ignore Schilling's vocalizations about the insurrection at the Capitol, his identification with white supremacists and his vocal support of what people justifiably called Trump's big lie about the election. And in part, they're able to do that because of a character clause. But otherwise, the argument goes, is, is it about the best players or what is it about 
what they hold politically. And I think that's it's another whole conversation. I'm not sure that we've really had. We've, we've tried to have it about steroids, but this is a different thing because it raises issues of where does the First Amendment begin and end? <laughs> what happens when you exercise this right in the middle of your job? Mm-hmm. Because we forget that these are people doing their day jobs. So I, I don't know that we've really thought about it. And so I, I guess you have to say is this conversation is one that I don't think we've really begun to explore at its multiple levels. Carmen Nanko Fernandez, thanks for this conversation. And maybe in the future, we could have you back and, and, and extend this conversation. This has been a, a, a really great talk. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Dominic. And thanks to your Commonweal community as well. Carmen's essay, Baseball and the Border, appears in our February issue and on our website. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. 